And we are back. What's going on, listeners? This is Daryl Harrison on the Just Thinking Podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be joining us from around the world. And uh, yeah, Just Thinking uh, is a global podcast. You, uh, you might be surprised to learn that, yeah, the majority of our listeners are in the U.S., in the good old U.S. of A., but wow, I think the last time I looked at the stats, our uh, top five countries, I think the U.K. was number two, uh, followed by South Africa, uh, Canada. Uh, I forget what the fifth uh, most downloaded country is, but uh, yeah. So wherever you may be listening to us from, greetings uh, from the Just Thinking Podcast. My name again is Daryl Harrison. I'm the lead host, and normally I'm joined uh, by my wingman, uh, Virgil Walker, better known as Omaha, to our regular listeners. And we call him that because he's based out of uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Well, I'm going to be flying solo tonight. Uh, Virgil's going to be taking a couple of weeks uh, sabbatical. Virgil's got a lot of irons in the fire uh, these days. And uh, uh, so he's going to be back with us in a couple of weeks. Uh, so Virgil won't be with us to, in this episode, episode 36 of the Just Thinking Podcast. So hopefully uh, that doesn't d- disappoint you too much. That it'll be only my voice that you're going to hear for the next couple of uh, episodes. But uh, thanks again for joining us. We appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen. Uh, I want to thank again all the listeners for all the love, support, prayers, that you've been giving us, uh, we, we, we took a little bit of a lighthearted approach, uh, yesterday with respect to the, uh, episode 35 of the podcast where we talked about, we titled it, Hey, who are these guys? Uh, it, it aired on, on 4th of July. And, uh, we thought it would be really cool given that it was holiday. Uh, just kind of take it back, kind of step back a little bit because those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast know, that we delve into some pretty heavy content, some pretty heavy biblical content. We're going to do that again in this episode, too. But last week, we kind of took it a little bit lighter. Uh, Say, so, hey, let's let's take an opportunity just to, to let the listeners know, especially for our new listeners who might be curious, man, who the heck are these guys? Where they come from? Who, you know, I don't know anything about these guys. I've heard about the podcast. Somebody may have referred you to the podcast and and uh, you're, you're listening by virtue of uh, word of mouth. But uh, we had fun uh, doing that one. So if you're a new listener, go out and check out the most recent episode, which is episode 35. Who, hey, who are these guys? That's that's kind of what we titled it. Uh, I was just happy to know uh, a couple days uh, after the podcast was launched, but I didn't realize there were so many other Toto fans around. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was really, uh, really, really encouraging <laughs> for me. Uh, I'm definitely probably one of the biggest Toto fans around. Uh, I really appreciate that. Probably one of the most underappreciated bands uh, in in music history, to be honest with you, given their contributions over the years. But yeah, so more Toto fans out there. Uh, Shout out to all my Toto fans. But uh, tonight uh, in this episode, we're going to shift gears quite a bit. Um, We're going to shift gears uh, rather significantly from the tone and tenor of the uh, episode from uh, from last week. Uh, and tonight, uh, we've titled this episode Toward a Pure Church. Toward a Pure Church. This is episode 36 of the Just Thinking Podcast. 
And uh, I'm going to dive right into this. I want to say, though, before we get into the content of this episode, and I, I tried to alert folks uh, in the days leading up to this episode, uh, leading up to this recording, that I strongly encourage parental discretion while listening to this episode. I strongly encourage parental discretion in listening to this episode. So if there are young children uh, within earshot of this episode, you either want to uh, pause and, and, and take a listen at, at a later time when you can listen alone, uh, when you're not in the presence of young children, or if you want to use some earphones, earbuds, whatever the case may be. But the content that we're going to talk about in this episode is not for young listeners. It is not for young listeners. So uh, if you want to take a moment to ensure that you're uh, in a private area where young listeners are not exposed to what we're going to talk about tonight, we're going to, as usual, uh, those of you who have listened to this podcast for any length of time know that what we do on this podcast is what we, we open the Bible up and we look uh, in detail, in depth, at what God's word has to say about the uh, social, theological, cultural, political issues that we address on this podcast. And uh, in this episode, that's no different. But I wanted to mention again, before we delve in, that parental discretion is strongly advised as you listened to this episode toward a pure church. Why are we dealing with this subject uh, that I will broach here in just a second. Well, to give it some context, on July 2nd, 2018, uh, a week ago, Monday, from this recording, we record every episode on Mondays at 8 o'clock Eastern. So last Monday, June, uh, uh, July 2nd, uh, Trinity Church in uh, Portland, Trinity Church of Portland, issued a public statement regarding Dr. Art Azurdia. Art Azurdia, and I'm going to read the statement verbatim to give some context to what we're going to talk about in this episode. Again, this is a public release from Trinity Church of Portland. The release is titled A Statement Regarding Art Azurdia from the Elders of Trinity Church of Portland. The statement is dated July 2nd, 2018 by Thomas Terry. The statement reads, and I quote, On Sunday, June 24, the elders of Trinity Church of Portland received an accusation that Art Azurdia has been in a sexually immoral relationship with a woman from outside of Trinity Church. The elders of Trinity Church, after an initial investigation, confronted Art with the accusation. Art admitted to the immorality. He also admitted to a previous sexually immoral relationship. Based on these facts and the biblical qualifications required of an elder, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, the elders have removed Art Azurdia as senior minister of word and worship at Trinity Church as an elder and from all pastoral ministry at Trinity Church. We grieve the shame this brings to the gospel 
and the sorrow it brings to God's people, unquote. Again, that was a statement regarding Art Azurdia from the Elders of Trinity Church of Portland, dated July 2nd, 2018, by Thomas Terry. In the episode notes uh, for this uh uh, episode 36, there will be a link in the notes to this statement. So if you subscribe to the podcast, you will see that link in the episode notes. Now, I want to begin by saying that this episode is not about Art Azurdia, per se. Before this news broke across social media, I'd never heard the name Art Azurdia. Had never heard the name before. Was not familiar with him. And I was not familiar with Trinity Church of Portland. The subject that we're going to be broaching in this episode, however, is sexual immorality in the church. Sexual immorality in the church. So again, this episode is not about Art Azurdia's sin, per se. But the announcement that Trinity Church released gives us opportunity to broach this topic in a broader context. I think we would all be naive. And and what I mean by we is that believers, Christians, those who profess to be followers of Christ, would be naive if we were not to admit that sexual immorality is an issue within the body of Christ. It is an issue. Art Azurdia is not unique. He is not the first to be guilty of this particular sin, and he will not be the last. He will not be the last. But I want to clarify as we launch into this conversation, this discourse tonight, that this episode is not about Art Azurdia. It is about the church. It is about the entire body of Christ, the Catholic body that is with a small c, the universal body of Christ, the whole body of Christ. Hence the title of this episode, Toward a Pure Church, Toward a Pure Church. Now, to make additionally clear that this is not about Art Azurdia, the objective of this episode is rooted in 1 Timothy 1, Verse 5, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul writes, For the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction in this episode here, episode 36, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So, This episode, again, is not about Art Azurdia. Art Azurdia has already been judged rightly, according to John 7, 24, by his local body. Um, And I'm praying for him, his wife. Uh, I'm not sure if he has children, but if he has children, I'm praying for his entire family. I'm praying for restoration, repentance and restoration. Um, with his wife, with his children, with the members of his church. We'll, we'll delve into that a little bit later. But I'm praying for him. So this episode is not about condemning Art Azurdia. Matter of fact, 
Uh, I doubt that you'll hear his name mentioned uh, for the duration of this podcast. But uh, we want to make that clear that the goal of our instruction here is love, not condemnation from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I want to start by referencing a couple of scriptures. First of all, Genesis 4, 7. This is where God is admonishing Cain. He's warning Cain against the uh, intention of his heart, his envy, his jealousy of his brother Abel. God obviously being omniscient as well aware of what Cain is thinking. God warns him in Genesis 4, 7. Matter of fact, let me just take a break here and say that all the scripture verses that you're going to hear in this episode, and you're going to hear a lot of them. You're going to hear a number of scripture verses in this episode. You're going to hear several. So if, if reading from the scriptures, if expositing the word bores you, you may want to hit the pause button and go find another podcast to listen to because the seriousness of this subject matter warrants an in-depth, serious, uh, substantive, deliberate review of what the word of God has to say um, about this topic. Genesis 4, 7. This is God talking to Cain. He's warning him. He says, God says, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. All the scripture verses you're going to hear, and and this is for the duration of the podcast, not just this episode, but I read from the NESB. uh, um, uh, I use the Mark Arthur NESB study Bible. So all the scripture references, references that you will hear are from the NESB. Genesis 4, 7, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now contrast that with the words of, of the Apostle Paul in Romans six fourteen, where Paul says, for sin shall not be master over you. So God says to Cain that you must master sin. Paul says, for sin shall not be master over you. Now, this is what we're talking about in this episode. We're talking about sin. We're talking about the specific sin of sexual immorality with the broader goal, the broader objective, the broader banner of toward a pure church. But we're talking about sin. You will hear me quote, again, several scripture verses, and you'll also hear me cite my favorite Puritan personally, Thomas Watson, from his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, a book which, if you have not yet read it, I highly commend it to you. I commend all of Thomas Watson's writings to you, but especially The Doctrine of Repentance, given the subject matter that we're talking about in this particular episode. So keep Genesis 4-7 in mind. Keep Romans 6-14 in mind. God tells Cain, you must master sin. Paul tells us that sin shall not be master over you. Watson says this in the Doctrine of Repentance. Quote, what greater indiscretion is there than to gratify an enemy? Sin gratifies Satan. When lust or anger burn in the soul, Satan warms himself at the fire. 
Men's sins feed the devil. Samson was called out to be made sport of by the lords of the Philistines, Judges 16.25. Likewise, the sinner is the devil's entertainment. It is meat and drink for him to see men sin. How he laughs to see them risking their souls for the world, as if one should risk diamonds for straws or should fish for bait with golden hooks. Every wicked man will be indicted as a fool at the day of judgment, unquote. Every wicked man will be indicted as a fool at the day of judgment. That's Watson from the Doctrine of Repentance. And I'll be citing that book uh, a couple of times, uh, a couple of additional times as we make our way through this episode. Now, in preparation for this discussion on this issue of sexual immorality toward a pure church, I thought that I would approach it from the standpoint of three separate swim lanes, if you will. Three separate swim lanes, three separate pillars, three separate uh, avenues. The first avenue is biblical admonishment. What does the Bible admonish us with respect to this issue of sexual immorality? How does the Bible admonish us? Secondly, there's a swim lane of biblical chastisement. How is the church to deal with those who are caught in the sin of sexual immorality? And then lastly, the last swim lane, biblical encouragement. Okay? So biblical admonishment, biblical chastisement, and then there's biblical encouragement. Several verses, I'm going to read verbatim, uh, under the swim lane of biblical admonishment. Now, we know that to admonish means to caution, to advise, or to counsel against something. Okay? To admonish means to caution, to advise, to counsel against something. So let's start with several texts that we're going to read. Proverbs 4. Verses 23 and then verses 25 to 27. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it springs of life. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. That's Proverbs 4, verses 23, 25, 26, and 27. Now, when that proverb speaks of watching over your heart, the heart represents the inner person, the conscience, the very seat of our moral character. It speaks of your inclinations and your motives, and as scriptures teach through and through, God is not only concerned about the act, he's concerned about the motive behind the act, okay? So it's, it's important for us to understand that the heart is the seat of our moral character. I also want to read Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. Matter of fact, this is the entire chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. And again, the subject is sexual immorality, and I think that subject warrants a deep dive into the scriptures uh, and you'll notice that for the 
the, the larger part, the larger portion of what I have to say tonight on this issue is geared towards men, male believers. But I do have a couple of things to say to women as well. But the majority of the content that I have uh, to go over in this episode and convey is geared towards men. So Proverbs chapter five, the pitfalls of immorality. My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding that you that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the pit. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, and she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you will groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how have how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. And he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. That is Proverbs 5 verses 1 through 23. Let's continue. We're in the swim lane of biblical admonishment. Proverbs 21, 8. The way of a guilty man is crooked, but as for the pure, his conduct is upright. That word pure speaks to the one who keeps his way clean before God. Proverbs twenty-one twenty-one: He who pursues righteousness and loyalty finds life, righteousness, and honor. That word pursue there is speaking about our affections, those things that we follow after, that we aim at, that we try to secure for ourselves. Matter of fact, it's such a, a, a serious word that it speaks to those things that we desire in such a way that we even harass people to obtain it. Okay, so that's Proverbs 21, 21. Proverbs 22, 3. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. Proverbs 22, 3. Again, the prudent sees the evil 
and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. Proverbs 23, 17, do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. Proverbs 27, 12, this is similar to Proverbs 22, 3 that we just read. A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. Proverbs 7, verses 10 through 27. I want to read these verses for you as well. This is Proverbs 7, verses 10 through 27. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. So he does not know that that it will cost him his life. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. That was Proverbs 7, verses 10 through 27. Let's continue. We're in the swim lane of biblical admonishment. In Ecclesiastes 7, 26, And I discovered, more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. 2 Timothy 2.22, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Don't miss that. Paul is is encouraging Timothy to pursue righteousness with those who, like him, call on the Lord from a pure heart. Okay, so congregate. Set your circle of friends as those individuals who are pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace from a pure heart. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5. 
for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion as the Gentiles, that is, unbelievers, not in lustful passions as the unbelievers who do not know God. Now, the term sexual immorality that Paul uses there is the word porneia, from which we get the English word pornography. In the Greek, biblically, porneia denotes illicit sexual intercourse of any kind. Sexual immorality, biblically, porneia is illicit sexual intercourse of any kind. That is adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, pedophilia, bestiality, you name it. Any type of sexual intercourse that is outside the biblical marriage union between a heterosexual male and a heterosexual female in holy matrimony is pornography biblically. Okay? So we tend to think of pornography in very graphic, overt, debased, um, orgy-like uh, uh, context situations and illustrations. But no. No, it doesn't have to be to that extreme, biblically speaking. Any sexual intercourse, heterosexual intercourse included as outside of marriage is pornographic in biblical terms. Okay? Acts 15, 19 through verse 20a. Acts chapter 15, verses 19 and 20a. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that we that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication. Okay? That they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication. This gives you a crystal clear, unambiguous idea of how serious God takes sexual immorality, that it is it is on the same level of idolatry. It is on the same level as idolatry, biblically. Acts 15, 20 says, but that we write to them that they abstain from things connect, contaminated by idols and from fornication. That word fornication is the exact same Greek word, porneia, that is used by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, which we just read. So the term sexual immorality, the word fornication, is the same Greek word. It's the same word, porneia. That word, uh, porneia, again, is any illicit sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Any. So biblically speaking, if you are involved in fornication, if you are having sexual intercourse outside of marriage, biblically speaking, you are a pornographer. You are a pornographer. 
Acts chapter 15, verse 29, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Now, that phrase, keep yourselves free, is a Greek word, diatereo. Diatereo denotes to maintain a careful and constant watch over your life. So Acts 15, 29, again, if you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well from such things as fornication. It means to keep a careful and constant, consistent watch over your life. We go back to Genesis, the text I read at the very beginning in Genesis 4. That's the desire of sin. You are the desire of sin. God warned Cain that sin's desire is for you, but you must master it. You must keep constant and careful watch over your life. 1 Corinthians 6.13, we're still in the swim lane of biblical admonishment. 1 Corinthians 6.13, Paul writes this, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with them both. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now that word immorality there in 1 Corinthians 6.13, again, is the exact same Greek word porneia. It's the exact same Greek word porneia that we read earlier of sexual immorality in 1 Thessalonians 4, as well as the word fornication in Acts 15. So now we have three English words that all mean the same word in the Greek. The phrase sexual immorality, the word fornication, and then the word immorality individually are all the same Greek word porneia. Continuing on, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. Flee immorality, that is flee porneia. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man, literally, that word immoral man, that phrase immoral man literally translates one who prostitutes himself or herself to the lusts of another. But the immoral man, the prostitute, the one who prostitutes himself or herself to the lust of another. Paul writes this, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know? That is, do you not understand? That Greek word for know is the word gnosko. It, it means to understand, not just to have a mental assent, but to understand. Paul is asking, do you not understand that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, the command to glorify God is to be understood up against the command to flee immorality. So Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee immorality. And alternatively to that, glorify God instead of participating, using your body to participate in immorality. 1 Peter 4 I want to turn to that one uh, in my Bible. First Peter four, verses one through five. First Peter four, verses one through five. Still on the swim lane of biblical admonishment. Peter writes in First Peter four, verses one through five. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, 
because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That is habitual sin, has ceased from sin. That is not to say we have ceased from sinning. But he who has suffered has ceased, suffered in the flesh has ceased from sinning habitually. Verse 2 of 1 Peter 4. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Continuing on in the swim lane of biblical admonishment about sexual immorality, Romans 6, verses 20 and 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of such things is death. Now, don't take death to just mean physical death. Uh, when you look at what's happening now with respect to uh, Brother Art Azertia, he is experiencing a death that is beyond just the physical. Okay? So the end of such act, uh, behavior, such actions, is death in many ways. Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. This is Psalm 5, verse 5. You hate all who do iniquity. Now, we've heard that phrase a gazillion times. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Uh, no. God hates the sin and the sinner. He hates the sin and the sinner. Psalm 5, verse 5 again. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You hate all who do iniquity by habit, who are habitually sinful as a way of life. Psalm 7, verse 12. If a man does not repent, he, that is God, will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. As we said before, God sees the evil and the good. It says he, is, he has bent his bow and made it ready, meaning his judgment is coming. His judgment is coming if you persist in this sin of sexual immorality or any sin for that matter. Uh, an admonishment to the to the women who may be listening. Uh, because with all due respect, though sexual immorality, men get most of the pu uh, publicity with respect to that sin, whether it's in the church or outside the church. Uh, women are not excluded. Women are sinners as well. Consider Proverbs 14.1 as a humble and loving admonishment from the Lord. Proverbs 14.1. The wise woman builds her house, 
but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Proverbs 14, 1 again. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. This, uh, this verse and then all the verses that we read up to now remind me of a sermon that I was, uh, that, that I gave uh, during a, uh, a uh, marriage, uh, a series of marriage themed uh, messages at a former church uh, to which I belonged. We uh, set aside the month of August one summer to preach on marriage. And I was able to uh, come alongside my pastor at the time to uh, deliver a couple of sermons during that month. And I remember uh, at the end of the second sermon that I preached for that month, I left the congregation with this um, admonishment to remember that there is enough things outside your marriage looking to destroy your marriage that you don't need to be cooperating in that destruction from the inside. Okay. There's enough stuff coming at your marriage from the outside that you don't need to be helping out that destruction from the inside. Now that's the husbands and wives. There is enough coming at you. And if you don't realize that, I just have to wonder what cave are you living in? If you don't think that this culture is coming after your marriage, please take the blinders off. But there's enough coming at you, your marriage, your family, from the outside that you don't need to be doing anything on the inside that's going to contribute to that destruction. Okay. Last text I want to cite in the swim lane of biblical admonishment is Ephesians 25. I'm sorry. Ephesians chapter five, verses 25 through 30. This is a text that we're all familiar with. Husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that is the church. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, that is the church, having cleansed her, again, the church, by the washing of water with the word. Verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her, that is the church, glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she, that is the church, will be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body, that is the church. Now, In going through those verses, Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 30, Paul makes nine distinct references to the church in those six verses. Nine, either explicitly by using the phrase the church or implicitly by means of use of the feminine pronouns she and her. Nine times Paul refers to, to the church in those six verses. So if you husbands and wives have ever read Ephesians five, that block of text from Ephesians five, and you thought that that chapter was about you, you've been reading that chapter all wrong. 
Husbands, that you are commanded to love your wife is not about you loving your wife. It is about you loving your wife so that the church benefits from it. Likewise, wives, and I've I've heard women say uh, many, many times, well, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't command a wife to love her husband. Well, yeah, it does. Actually, it does. If you go back to John chapter 13, John 13, wives are covered there. John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, wives, it doesn't explicitly say in Ephesians 5 that you ought to love your husbands, but you're covered under John 13, verses 34 and 35. So you see, the point I'm trying to drive home here for husbands and wives, and and the the reason I'm unpacking Ephesians 5.25 through 30, and specifically reiterating the fact that Paul references the church nine times, is that for the Christian, for the Christian spouse, you must understand that for you, marriage is eschatological. It is not sociological. Marriage is eschatological, not sociological. Your marriage isn't about you, husband. Your marriage is not about you, wife. Your marriage is about Christ and his church and presenting to Christ a church that, as the Apostle Paul said in the text that we just read in Ephesians 5, presenting to Christ a church that is without spot or wrinkle. That is why you're married, if you didn't know already. That is why you're married, Christian husband, Christian wife. Marriage is eschatological, not sociological. This is why reality shows like Married at First Sight and 90 Day Fiance, this is why those shows are a joke. You don't marry as if wearing a blindfold. Marriage isn't about your feelings. It's not about being physically attracted. Marriage is about the church and presenting a pure church. This is why we titled this episode, Toward a Pure Church. Your marriage is about presenting to Christ by example of your marriage, a church that is without spot or wrinkle as we just read in Ephesians 5.27. Your marriage is eschatological. It is not sociological. Okay? Now, to husbands. Again, I have a blunt word for you, and I'm giving everyone a heads up. I'm going to speak very bluntly here. As a man, I'm a man, and I'm not naive. I'm not trying to play super Christian here. As if to say, you know, wow, Daryl, you're, you're a podcast host or whatever the case may be, to say I'm oblivious to the kinds of temptations that trap 
men into sexual sin. Okay, I'm going to speak very bluntly here to the men, especially, but not exclusively. Um, The National Institutes of Health did a study a few years ago. They studied men from around the world uh, in in relationships, uh, whether it was married or unmarried. They did a study on how long it takes during a sexual during an episode of sexual intercourse for the man to reach that state of, shall we say, uh, climax and 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 and, uh, and and the sensual experience that culminates in the end of that uh, that uh, that intercourse experience. And what they found was, on average. It takes about 5.4 minutes, about 5.4 minutes on average to reach from the, from the time intercourse begins to reach that level of physical satisfaction. 5.4 minutes. Now, brothers, I have to ask you this. Is 5.4 minutes of physical, illicit, physical satisfaction worth destroying your family. Is 5.4 minutes worth destroying your relationship with your wife, your children? Is it worth being removed from ministry? Is 5.4 minutes worth the spot and wrinkle that you bring upon Christ's bride, the church. Is 5.4 minutes worth the heartache, the heartbreak, the tears, the sleepless nights, the worry, the distrust, the destruction of relationships, The discipline of the Lord is 5.4 minutes worth it? Is it really worth it? Ask yourself that. Is that 5.4 minutes really worth all that? Let's move to the second swim lane here, biblical chastisement. Biblical chastisement. Again, We're talking about sexual immorality in the church. We expect the world to do what it does, but in the church. All right. Sexual immorality toward a poor, a pure church. Now, by way of definition to chastise means to discipline or to criticize severely. And there is a role for that within the body of Christ. Consider these uh, passages, if you will, Leviticus 5, Verse 17, now if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. This kind of reminds me of Paul's words in Romans 1, where God has placed within the heart of every person an innate awareness of right and wrong so that we are without excuse. Same thing has been said here in Leviticus 5 verse 17. Now for person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not be done, 
though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. Let's look at Matthew 18. This is a classic text on church discipline. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Again, I'm reading from the NASB. Matthew 15 through 17. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So again, that was Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 17. That's the classic text with regard to how the church should respond with respect to the body, members of the body who are uh, uh, involved in a, in a sin. Uh, it's, it's, it's got degrees of escalation there uh, whereby the church is to deal with those uh, who are involved in habitual sin. Again, we're in the swim lane now of biblical chastisement. We covered biblical admonishment. We are now in biblical chastisement. Look at first Timothy chapter five, verses 19 and 20. First Timothy five verses 19 and 20. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now this goes all the way back to the old Testament law in Deuteronomy 17 verse six, where the Israelites were commanded not to take the word of just one witness in meeting out discipline or punishment uh, on, against someone who was accused of breaking the law. No, you need the testimony of two or three witnesses in order to carry forth uh, that discipline, if it's going to be carried forward at all. So again, first Timothy five, 19 and 20, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses, those who continue in sin, okay? Those who continue in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. This is exactly what Trinity Church in Portland has done. They were absolutely biblically right in doing what they did subsequent to the admissions of their brother there. Now the word rebuke there in first Timothy five 20 translated literally means to expose, to bring into the light, to reprehend severely, to chide, to admonish, to reprove, but with an eye toward correction with an eye toward correction. Cross-reference that, cross-reference 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20 with Ephesians 5, verse 11, where Paul writes, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but even expose them. You see, th 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 this is critical for us in understanding the, the biblical doctrine of judgment. I hear so many Christians Say, well, no, 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 don't judge. 
We're not supposed to judge. Well, yeah, yeah, we are. We are supposed to judge. John 7, 24 sets the context for that. Do not judge based on appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. It is with righteous judgment that the body at Trinity Church in Portland and any other church is well within their right to apply biblical discipline to anyone within the body who is in sin. Um, as, as we mentioned here at the top of the episode, and in order to apply biblical discipline, you must make a judgment that the person has sinned. And what I find that people often do, Christians especially, is they confuse judgment with condemnation. The two are not the same thing. I make judgments every day. And when we talk about the subject that we've been dealing with here in this episode with respect to sexual immorality, you better be making judgments. The first judgment I need to make is that, Daryl, that woman's not your wife. That's the first judgment I make is she's not my wife. Okay? So I beg you, please, stop confusing judgment with condemnation. The two are not the same thing. Christians are absolutely permitted to judge. Jesus says that explicitly in John 7, 24. But only God can condemn. Only God himself can condemn. Okay? So we are to make biblical judgments. We are to be biblically discerning up against God's objective truth, not against our own subjective shifting, changing uh, paradigm of what's right and wrong. God's objective truth is objective because it's fixed. It's equitable. It applies to everyone equally. So we judge on the basis of what God's word says and leave the condemnation to him. But that is not to say that we as a body are not permitted to judge and then render discipline within the body according to God's word, because we absolutely are. Now, continuing on the swim lane of biblical chastisement, James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, okay, we just talked about that, Matthew 18. The chapter in Matthew 18 on church discipline, is there towards the goal of turning a beloved brother or sister back to the right way, the way of God, the way of righteousness, the way of holiness, the way of sanctification. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's James 5, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. See, you thought that love was the only thing that covered a multitude of sins. But no, according to James chapter 5, verse 20, turning a sinner, turning a sinful brother back from the error of his way will save his soul from death 
and that turning him back will cover a multitude of sins. I want to cross-reference that with Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. I want to cross-reference James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, with Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Let me read James again first so we get some context. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now listen to Ezekiel, rather, Ezekiel 3, verses 18 through 21. Ezekiel 3, 18 through 21. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked ways, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and I place an obstacle before him, he will die. Since you have not warned him, he shall die in his sin, and his righteous deeds, which, we, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. Verse 21, however, if you have warned the righteous man that the righteous should not sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning and you have delivered yourself. So it is fully right for the fellow fellow believers to warn one another when we are in sin. And that requires that we make a judgment in order to do that. But to make a judgment is not the same as condemnation. Okay. I want to quote Thomas Watson again from the doctrine of repentance here. Before we move into our third swim lane of biblical encouragement. Thomas Watson in the doctrine of repentance says this. The first part of Christ's medicine is eye salve. It is the great thing noted in the prodigal's repentance. He came to himself, Luke 15, 17. He saw himself as a sinner and nothing but a sinner. Before a man can come to Christ, he must first come to himself. Solomon, in his description of repentance, considers this the first ingredient if they come to themselves, 1 Kings 8, 47. A man must first recognize and consider what his sin is and know the plague of his heart before he can duly be humbled for it. The first created thing God made was light. So the first thing in a penitent is illumination. Now you are light in the Lord, Ephesians 5, 8. The eye is made both for seeing and weeping. Sin must first be seen before it can be wept for. Sin must first be seen before it can be wept for. That's Thomas Watson in the Doctrine of Repentance. Now, moving into our third and final swim lane of biblical encouragement. We, we always want to encourage one another. 
We don't want to just admonish, chastise, and leave it there. You don't want the brother and sister to go away feeling defeated. Feeling because a true born-again believer is going to feel bad enough about their sin as it is. So we don't want to do, we don't want to do a pile on. Okay. So you always want to end with encouragement. And that's what I want to do here. I want to encourage you, encourage you. I do admonish you that if you're involved in the sin of sexual immorality, that you repent now. Turn back to God. Confess your sin to him. Confess your sin to others who have been hurt by your sin. But be encouraged. That is what the cross is all about. The word says that we can come to Christ where we can find grace to help in time of need. That's what his word teaches us. So let's talk about some biblical encouragement. First Thessalonians 4.1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instructions as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. That you excel still more, my brother, my sister. Excel still more. Don't give up. Don't give up. Excel still more. Keep pressing on. It's like the song says that we sing uh, quite often at the church I attend. Uh, My sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. My sins, they are many but his mercy is more. So excel still more, my brothers and sisters. 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Hebrews 12.14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That word sanctification, that's that Greek word hagias, holy ones. It speaks of purity of heart and life. Purity of heart and life. I mentioned before, that God is not only concerned about our actions, but he's concerned about the motives behind the actions. They must not only be right actions, they must be actions done with the right motive. 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 14. Biblical encouragement. But flee from these things, you man of God or woman of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach. Kind of reverse back to uh, Ephesians 5. Without spot or wrinkle, Paul said. Here he is again writing to Timothy. Keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. The phrase, fight the good fight. Make the good confession. When we hear those phrases, we should remember that our life, our walk, is a living confession before many witnesses. 
Paul is saying here. Many witnesses, those witnesses are both within the church and without the church. They're inside the body and outside the body. How many of us can remember probably growing up, one of your parents, if not both of them, saying to you at some point, <coughs> now be on your best behavior because you never know who's watching. <coughs> be on your best behavior because you never know who's watching. That is so true. The world is watching us. The world is watching us, my beloved. The world is watching the entire body. The world is watching us. It's got, our, it's got its eyes on us, even more so now with the prevalence of social media. The world is watching how we speak to one another. They're watching how we treat one another. They're watching, husbands, how you treat your wife. They're watching wives, how you treat your husband. They're watching that. Okay? Before many witnesses, Paul writes to Timothy. Stand in 1 Timothy. Let's look at 1 Timothy 4, verses 7b through 10. 1 Timothy 4, verses 7b through 10. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It goes back to what I said earlier. Your marriage is eschatological, not just sociological, not just temporal. It's eschatological. Verse 9 of 1 Timothy 4, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this, that is for godliness, we labor and strive. Because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. So the question there is, where is your hope? Where is your hope, my brother? Where is your hope, my sister? Where is your hope? Are, are you, are you, and, and I bring this up because this is, this is a primary tool. This is, this is a, this is a prime uh, strategy or scheme that Satan uses to get brothers and sisters caught in the trap of sexual immorality, particularly those who are married. Are you discontent in your marriage right now? Is what I want to ask you. Are you discontent for some reason? Is there a want that you perceive to be a need, but is really just a want? Is there a want within your marriage relationship that your spouse is not meeting? Is there an expectation, husband, that you have of your wife or wife that you have of your husband that he or she is not meeting that has resulted in a spirit of discontentment in your heart? Satan loves a discontented spouse. He's, 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 Picture Satan in a white lab coat in the lab, wringing his hands together and just with that evil scientist laugh. And he's just waiting. He's just waiting to pounce on that attitude of discontentment that you have. So are you, are you discontent for whatever reason in your marriage? Is, in other words, is Christ not sufficient for you? Because that's what you're declaring 
when you harbor a spirit of discontentment in your heart. You're declaring to your spouse that Christ is not enough, not that your spouse is not enough. You're declaring that Christ is not enough. That's really what you're declaring. So keep the words of 1 Timothy 4, verse 10 in mind. For it is for this, for godliness that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God. We have fixed our hope on the living God. Your hope should never be fixed on your spouse. Never. Never fix your hope on your spouse. Never. Lastly, Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13. Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13. David writes this, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. The psalmist writes, Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Now, in the Hebrew, that word presumptuous refers to arrogant sins, sins of pride, sins of arrogance, premeditated sins that you take time to think about, to construct, to scheme, to devise, to carry out, to imagine, to fantasize about. You're imagining the pleasure of that experience, of that sinful uh, uh, escapade outside of that marriage relationship. You remember how it made you feel the last time. You want to do it again. That's all you can think about. That's all you can meditate on. But the psalmist is praying, keep me from presumptuous sins. In my study Bible, Um, I have noted by that verse, Psalm 19, 12, keep me from presumptuous sins. I have a note there that says, pray every day, especially men. That's what I have noted next to that verse in my study Bible. Psalm 19, 12, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Pray every day, especially men. Because men are so visual. They can see something in a woman for a nanosecond. And the mind is gone. It's gone. Let me give you a good example of that. Judges 14. Judges 14 and my man, Samuel. This is Samuel. This is Samuel in Judges 14. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Judges chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Let me show you how the, how the mind of, of the man works. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw, there's his eyes. I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. 
Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Verse 3, then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. Get her for me, for she looks good to me. A man can see something of a woman physically and bam, his mind is gone. Samson is is a prime example of that. So pray, my brothers, especially men, keep me that God will keep you from presumptuous sins and that they may not rule over you. Again, back to Genesis 4 and Romans 6. Sin shall not be master over you. Genesis 4, you must master sin. Okay? Now, as an aside, we're about to wrap up, but as an aside, I want to say something about forgiveness because Forgiveness is also an element of this. So we've covered biblical admonishment. We've covered biblical chastisement. We've covered biblical encouragement. But there's an aspect of forgiveness here with any sin, especially within the body of Christ, that must be uh, addressed, Uh, particularly as it relates when you've got a sin of this magnitude and, and this gravity uh, sexual immorality within the marriage. Uh, of course, the word of God clearly commands followers of Christ to forgive an infinite number of times those who would sin against us, who would offend us, who would transgress us. And by that, I mean who have actually sinned, okay? Not necessarily hurt our feelings. I mean, sin. They have sinned against us by definition, meaning they have violated us as it relates to what God's objective word says. For instance, in the case of adultery, uh, one spouse has committed adultery uh, against another. That is an objective, unarguable, unambiguous sin. Uh, So where does forgiveness play? There's a couple of things I want to point out about forgiveness uh, that I think uh, warrants uh, saying. Three things I want to point out about forgiveness. Number one, that forgiveness does not mean the absence or avoidance of consequences. Forgiveness does not mean the absence or avoidance of consequences. I base that partly on Matthew chapter 18, verse 7. We're going to go back to the the, uh, chapter on on, uh, church discipline. Forgiveness does not mean the absence or avoidance of consequences. It may mean that. It depends on the heart of the person you offended. But it doesn't always, it doesn't automatically, it doesn't inherently mean the absence or avoidance of consequences. Matthew 18, 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There were no lower forms of life, okay, to the Jewish people than a Gentile and tax collector, okay? 
Let's look at Colossians 3.25. Still on forgiveness and the fact that forgive being forgiven doesn't necessarily assuage or, or, or mean the absence of consequences. Colossians 3.25. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Okay? So again, Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean the absence or avoidance of consequences. Number two, forgiveness doesn't mean the restoration of a relationship to its previous state, to its former state, to its former condition. Forgiveness doesn't always mean the restoration of a relationship to its former condition. Now, it may mean that, but again, it doesn't inherently mean that. Let's look at some text here. Romans 12, verse 18. Romans 12, 18. Let me flip that here real quick. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Okay? As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, but we can't speak to the other party. Okay. So there's no guarantee that just because forgiveness has been granted, that the relationship will be restored to its previous condition. Let's also look at Titus chapter three, verse 10, Titus three, verse 10. If I can get there here, just a second. Titus three, and verse 10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Okay? Titus 3.10 says reject a factious man. All right? So there's no guarantee, again, that the relationship will be restored. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 4. James 4, verse 4. Let's go there and look at one other text uh, to kind of support this. Uh, I think there's just a a lot of assumptions made about forgiveness, and and a lot of them just don't line up with what the Bible teaches. James 4, verse 4. Okay? You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Okay? So never think that because forgiveness has been granted that the relationship is going to be restored to to its pre-sin state. Okay? Last thing I want to mention about forgiveness, uh, so so just a review. Number one, I said that... uh, uh, forgiveness uh, does not mean the avoidance of consequences. Number two, forgiveness doesn't mean the restoration of the relationship necessarily. And then number three, it's also important to remember that forgiveness is more important for forgiveness to be genuine than immediate. Okay. It's more important that forgiveness be genuine than forgiveness be immediate. Now that's not to say that genuine forgiveness can't be immediate. 
Absolutely it can. Okay. But I think there's a, 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 a perception that all forgiveness must be immediate. And immediate forgiveness that's disingenuous is not forgiveness. Okay, so my point here is that it is better that forgiveness not be immediate but be genuine than to be disingenuous and immediate. Okay? Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So the question there is, what does just as mean? Just as the Lord forgave you. Well, how does the Lord forgive us? Well, the Lord forgives us genuinely. This is how, this is how and why we can trust God. We can trust that the atonement of Christ is actually an atonement with respect to the forgiveness of our sins because we know that God is a God who cannot lie. His word is genuine. His word is genuine. And because his word is genuine, the forgiveness that he promises us through his word is also genuine. Okay? All right? So those three things on forgiveness. Doesn't mean the avoidance or the uh, 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 that there will be no consequences. Number two, doesn't mean the restoration of relationship necessarily. It may very well, your relationship may very well be restored. But don't assume that it will be. And then thirdly, it's more important that, that forgiveness be genuine, even if it's not immediate. Um, I want to quote Thomas Watson uh, once more, and then we'll wrap up with a couple other verses to close out. Thomas Watson, and again, the doctrine of repentance. Uh, please take this to heart, listeners. I, I beg you. Watson says this, a hard heart is the worst heart. It is called a heart of stone, um, Ezekiel 36, 26. If it were iron, it might be mollified in the furnace. But a stone put in the fire will not melt. It will likely fly in your face. Impenitence is a sin that grieves Christ, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, Mark 3, verse 5. It is not much of the disease it is not so much the disease that offends the physician as the contempt of his medicine. It is not so much the sins we have committed that so provoke and grieve Christ as that we refuse the medicine of repentance, which he prescribes. This aggravated Jezebel's sin. I gave her space to repent and she did not repent. Revelation 2.21. A hard heart receives no impression. It is untuned for every duty. It was a sad speech Stephen Gardner uttered on his deathbed. I have denied my master with Peter, but I cannot repent with Peter. Oh, the plague of an obdurate heart. Pharaoh's heart turned into stone was worse than his waters turned into blood. David had his choice of three judgments, plague, sword, and famine, but he would have chosen them all rather than a hard heart. An impenitent sinner is neither allured by entreaties nor frightened by menaces. Those who will not weep with Peter will weep like Judas. 
A hard heart is the anvil on which the hammer of God's justice will strike to all eternity, unquote. Now, I want to leave you all with uh, one of my favorite verses. I think it's probably safe to say that we all have spiritual disciplines that we practice to keep us from those those premeditated uh, sins that the psalmist spoke of in Psalm 19. Uh, One of the spiritual disciplines that I practice is looking often at Luke chapter 4, verse 13. Looking often, I mean multiple times a day, at Luke 4.13. Why is Luke 4.13 so important to me, so significant? Well, Luke 4 is the chapter where Christ is tempted of the devil in the wilderness. You recall that Christ is called and led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for the express purpose of being tempted by the devil. Satan tempts Christ three times. On each occasion, in each instance, Christ responds with the truth of Scripture. And in verse 4 of Luke, I'm sorry, Luke, verse 13 of Luke chapter 4, we see this. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him, that is Satan left him, that is Jesus, until a more opportune time. Now, I would venture to say that you've probably heard multiple sermons given on the first half of that verse. That is the words that appear before the comma. The words when the devil had finished every temptation. You hear sermons all the time about how Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and then the devil left him. And then that's all you hear. You never hear the words after that comma. That he left him until a more opportune time. Now, my question for you is this, as we get ready to close this episode of Just Thinking Podcast. If if Satan was devious and evil enough to think that he could come at the Son of God again, having been defeated in these three occasions, that if he thought that he could come against the Son of God again, that he would get another opportunity to attack the Son of God so that he would fall into sin, what do you think Satan thinks about you? What do you think he thinks about me? Do you really think for one second that you're immune to fall into the same sin that our brother here out in Portland fell into. This brother was senior minister of word and worship. He was an elder. Excuse me. If Satan can come after Jesus or think he can come after Jesus again, what do you think he thinks about you? See, here's the thing. Satan starts at the top and works his way down. Within the family, he's going to start with the with the spouses. 
He's going to try to break that marriage up. And then the waterfall effect will be to the children, the job, the church. Please, I beg you. And listen, pray for me as well, that I will not fall. As I pray for you, that you will not fall. None of us is immune. None of us is immune. I don't care how long you've been married. I don't care how good you think your marriage is going right now. Matter of fact, if you think your marriage is going good, you need to be on your knees even more often. Never think you're immune to falling into sexual immorality. Never. Because you're not. You're not. Okay? You absolutely are not. So, And pray for me. Again, that I would not fall as I pray for you, that you will not fall. So as you can see, hopefully, in the time that we've spent going through this issue in this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, that God takes sexual immorality extremely seriously, extremely seriously. Guard your heart. Guard your eyes. Do what you have to do to protect yourself from falling into this sin. And let me leave you with this this last encouragement in Ephesians 4.15. Ephesians 4.15, the Apostle Paul writes this, but speaking the truth in love, we, that is the church, are to grow up Let me pause right there. When Paul says we, that that means we all have a role in helping each other grow and helping each other mature and helping helping with the progressive sanctification that Christ, through his Holy Spirit, is working in each of us. This Christian life is not to be lived solo. It's not. Okay, so let's take Paul at his word here. He says, but speaking the truth in love, we, the church, are to grow up in all respects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, the church, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. That's each of us. Each of us is a joint in that body. According to the proper working of each individual part, And we are each an individual part of that body, causing the growth of the body. That is, the body is another name for the church, for the building of itself, that is the church, in love, in love. And my brothers and sisters, what I've shared with you in this episode is shared in the spirit of the love of Christ that I have for each and every one of you. Pray for Brother Azardia. Pray for his wife. Pray for his family. Pray for pastors everywhere. Pray for pastors' wives everywhere. Pray for marriages everywhere. If you are discontent in your marriage, confess that sin and see Christ as your sufficiency, not your spouse. 
I love you all. Thanks for hanging in there with me on this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast. And we hope you will join us next week. Thank you for tuning in to Just Thinking, a podcast brought to you by the Bar Podcast Network. You can find all of Just Thinking episodes at www.thebarpodcast.com. Tune in next week to another edition of Just Thinking. And remember, let's think.